welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, I'm thrilled that Charles Payne, the host of Fox Business's Making Money with Charles Payne, is joining us. Hopefully, he'll be telling us all how we can make more money, Um, but we're going to have him break down the economy for us, including wage growth, unemployment, the potential trade war with China, what does it all mean, and talk about his new book, which you should get because he's always trying to help us make more money. So, Charles, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Beverly. So first question for you, I know people see you on Fox Businesses Making Money with Charles Payne, your show. Um, I've had the honor of being on regularly with you, and it's always a pleasure. But a question that I've never asked you, and I think our listeners would be interested to know, is how did you even get to Fox? What's your background in TV and your interest in the economy and business? Where where did Charles Payne begin with his journey to where he is today? <laughs> Well, it began on a on a uh, sad note um, back when I was 12 years old, and I spent most of my well, I spent all of my childhood at that point on army bases around the world. And I came home from school, and my mom said we're leaving. So me, and my mom, and my two younger brothers got on a bus, uh, painless. We left Fort Lee, Virginia, a two-story house. I had my own room. We never locked our doors, and. We all came and we all drove up to uh, Harlem. At that time, it was the 1970s. It was the most dangerous and perhaps the poorest neighborhood in America, certainly the most dangerous. And uh, that's when I had a whole lot of things done on me that I had taken for granted, like uh, in the winter or whenever you move into a new place, heat and hot water came with it. <laughs> we moved every year just about right. in the Army. So I never knew that you could actually go through an entire winter without, without hot water. So uh, between the poverty, we were flat broke, completely broke, and the violence, which was extraordinary, really more, really more devastating to me and, uh, and my family, uh, having grown up again on army bases. And you know, I had a few scuffles in my life, but you know the kind of thing where you, you you wrestle for about five minutes and your friends five minutes later. That wasn't the <laughs> right. world I, I embarked upon, and uh, it was it was different, and I never thought about money a single day in my entire life up until that point. But I was the oldest, and it just dawned on me I had to do something to help. And initially, I would uh, get paper towels and Windex and clean windshields at stoplights and hustle like that or shovel snow in front of businesses, whatever I could do to make money. And so I just started to say, how can I make more? And like almost anybody else, I equated money with Wall Street and the uh, Wall Street Journal. So I started reading a journal, and you know, I, I finally figured out how to read it. It was very complicated in those days, a whole bunch of tables, and but I deciphered it at some point, and I told my mom when I was 14 years old, I'm going to work on Wall Street. I bought my first mutual fund when I was 17. She had the cosign, and my first stock when I was 18 years old. So uh, I was hooked at a pretty young age um, with the stock market. I started working on Wall Street after after going into the Air Force for four years, at E.F. Hutton, which was a famous firm. And that's where I had my epiphany that a lot of people have now because I had romanticized the notion of being a stockbroker. Like, you know, you do all this research and you find these great companies for your clients. And it really wasn't that way. It was sort of the stock du jour, uh, you know, what stocks they had in inventory, you made more money on. Anyway, sort of shattered my dreams of what the stock market was going to be or what a broker was going to be. So after a couple of years, I started my own research firm. And eventually I got the attention of a financial television. CNBC invited me on. And after going on there for a while, I, I met uh, Neil, Neil Cavuto, who eventually moved on to 
this upstart called Fox. At the time, I thought he was nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Look at him now. Fact, yeah, no, I'll never forget the first time they actually called me and said, hey, Neil, I want you to come on this show. And I'm like, oh, boy, you got to be kidding me. And I swear, it feels like we, I went to a basement studio with a little bad lighting. I think the table had three legs. I was holding one up with my knee. You know, what it, it was just, it was an amazing, um, uh, I guess, gamble on his part, but that was my introduction to Fox. And at some point, and maybe 15 years ago, I was asked to be a contributor to Fox News. And, uh, you know, as I say, the sort of the rest was history. It was a study progression since then. And just curious from you, what is day to day like? I think sometimes people think that studios are very glamorous. You you talk about how it was when Fox News first started and the equipment's not the fanciest and the anchor table is falling apart. I think sometimes it looks a lot more glamorous on the, the television than what you see behind the scenes. Um, but just curious from you, what is day to day like? What time do you have to get up? How much do you have to read to stay on top of everything? And has that changed quite a bit with how fast the news changes, especially with the president that tweets all the time? Well, you know, I still have my own uh, independent research firm, stock market research firm. So I work just about every day of the year, 300 and, uh, 365 days. I, I work just about all but 10 of them. Uh, and so I work every Saturday, every Sunday at my own leisure. And I usually try to get up early in the morning so that by the time everyone's up and at them, I don't have to take any more time away from the family, uh, which, you know, they, they really endured a lot uh, during my career, to be honest with you. So my typical day, I, I'm usually up around 4 a.m. I try to leave uh, New Jersey before 6 a.m. to miss to beat the traffic. And uh, I'm at Fox for, for many, many hours. But when I'm not doing my hits, I'm studying the market. I'm studying political events that may impact the market. So I'm always working. I write every single day. Uh, I just wrote a book that's going to be published in two or three weeks called Unstoppable Prosperity. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a classic workaholic, and you're right. I mean, now the things I have to know, uh, you know, have gone even further than, than ever before. And the news cycle itself can change on a dime depending on the tweet or anything. So uh, you have to be a lot more nimble. You have to have a, a wider breadth of knowledge. Uh, and, and for me, even connecting those dots to the, to the economy and to the stock market is a, a greater challenge. Well, let's talk about the economy as a whole. We have seen a lot of growth in the economy since the president took over. We have seen unemployment numbers, especially for women, for minorities, go to record lows, which is amazing. Yet you even had Joe Biden say um, a few days ago that this is an economy the president inherited, that this is something that he didn't do. What do you say to that claim by Joe Biden that, that President Trump just inherited something that has led to the growth and the wonderful news we know about the economy today? It's very frustrating for me because I know the facts, you know, and I really try to deal mostly in facts. I have to because my primary role in life when I wake up in the morning is how can I make people money? Uh, you know, people entrust uh, every year millions of dollars for me to help them figure out this market and how to make it and even beat the market. So I know that the, the economy was limping along. I know our GDP growth was very, very weak. I know that even the unemployment numbers under the uh, Obama-Biden presidency came about mostly because people left the workforce. Uh, and, and so wages were stagnant. Um, and and it's, 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 it, listen, 
honestly, what people don't understand about our economy, unfortunately, it's not it's not worth it, I guess, for politicians to say as much. But our economy is elastic. So the deeper we have recessions, usually the, the faster or the stronger we come back. It's almost if you can consider a rubber band. So when President uh, Obama inherited that massive sell-off, which, by the way, picked up after his election, I always said they should measure presidents on the day they're elected, not when they're inaugurated. Be that as it may, uh, you know, no, whether he won or, or whether McCain won, they were going to enjoy a strong rebound from those deaths that we are in. But the question was, could they grow it from there? And and that did not happen. And, you, and there's two diametrically opposite uh, economic platforms. One was high taxes, extraordinary regulations just through the roof. The other, now we have one where there's been a, a major attempt to take away some of these regulations, particularly the onerous ones, like dust particles and things like that. And of course, the tax cuts. And consequently, we are seeing wage gains right now, which is the number one metric I've been monitoring and I really appreciate that we have not seen in well over a decade. And last week, Morgan Stanley put out data that suggests we could see 4% year-over-year wage growth going into the election next year, which would be uh, astronomical. Just something, honestly, that most experts even gave up on ever happening again. And, and the wage growth, I think, is an interesting one because that seems to be the last thing when it comes to our economy that's doing so well that has seemed to catch up. And I still hear from many people who are doubters and say, no, the wage growth isn't as high as it should be. Why does wage growth take a little bit longer to see um, based on the the fewer reg- regulations, the lower taxes? Why does it take a while to catch up? And what do you say to the naysayers out there saying it's not as high as it should be? And, and frankly, some of them even doubt that there is wage growth happening at all. Well, I, you know, I, I can't argue with uh, people who aren't using facts, uh, you know, and, and of course, Joe Biden is, is not even running on facts, he's actually asking people to feel uh, almost all of his campaign stops so far have been, hey, do you feel this economy? And, you know, quite, quite frankly, that's a different statement than, than saying it's not working or it's not, not happening. The experts, the, you know, the economists out there, this, this economy has confounded them. They really said we can never have manufacturing jobs, and yet we have well over 400,000 manufacturing jobs in the last couple of years. They didn't see wages coming back to this degree. And, you know, obviously it's different for different industries. There's no doubt about that. But as we have now 7.5 million jobs that are open, uh, what usually happens is more competition for workers. So, and they're going to be a lot of areas, even, even in the lowest skill set jobs out there where there'll be demand for workers. And uh, you'll even see that happening. But I can tell you right now, in the last nine months, seven of those non-supervisory wages have grown faster in overall wages, which already suggests that if, if you don't see it, you will. Now, it's, it's one thing to say, okay, I got it, and, and then to say maybe it should be higher. That's a whole different discussion. That's where politicians come into play. I can tell you right now that a lot of experts did not think this could happen. Let's talk about an area that I think has split many people on figuring out what is the right direction to go, and that's on the issue of trade, um, the potential trade war with China. You even see people who are conservative seem to split on what the president's doing and whether or not it works. Any any general over overview thoughts on the president's approach to how he's dealing with China and other countries in reference to trade and what this could mean economically moving forward? 
on May 15th, I tweeted that President Trump should remove the uh, steel and aluminum tariffs on Canada and Mexico. And he announced it two days after that. So I'm happy about that. Um, right. I think I do think, though, that they were complicit, that they kind of looked the other way deliberately as China was dumping all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, industrial metals in those countries and then shipping them across the border. I don't think they'll do that again. I think they know, we know, and everyone knows. So let's get that out of the way so we can move forward with the new trade deal, USMCA, uh, which, by the way, will be a boon for uh, all three countries and more particularly U.S. farmers. I don't think people realize China is the number five export destination for agricultural products after Mexico and Canada are number one and two. Uh, so I'm hoping that comes about fairly quickly. I applaud President Trump for taking on this issue uh, with China. It's gone on too long. You know, it's interesting. Over the weekend, uh, they had an implosion of the old Bethlehem Steel uh, headquarters. And it was a, and just, you know, of course, any of those implosions are always magnificent to watch. But it was also heartbreaking at the same time. So, you know, I'm a weird dude. I came in early this morning. I went over all the steel production numbers for the <laughs> early 1990s. <laughs> 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 Let's just face it, you're not normal that you do that, but that's why you have the job that you have. <laughs> so one of the first things I say to people who I work with and prepare them for TV interviews, I'm like, remember that you're not normal. The fact that you deal with this policy issue means you're not normal, and that's okay, but the rest of the country doesn't think the same way you do. <laughs> exactly. So try not to be walky. Do what you do, but put it in layman's terms if you can. Exactly. Uh, you know, so so the bottom line is, you know, with uh, Bethlehem still and it, the implosion of it, I think it's a perfect example of uh, just, you know, with, with China taking advantage of rules or, or even evading the rules. You know, the WTO had certain rules for subsidizing and dumping, and they still broke the rules every single year to the point where they broke us. They broke our steel, uh, you know, the jobs and, our, and a lot of our manufacturing jobs. So, and now, of course, the added layer of that is the intellectual property that's been stolen and will be used against us, not just in commerce, but in, in, in military and other things. So it's a fight that we should have had. We should have taken a firmer stance. I, yeah, I just don't think the WTO works. I've looked into all of the cases that we brought against them, and I just see a, a, this familiar thing. I mean, right now, for instance, we've got a case against Airbus. That began 15 years ago, and it's still not resolved. And it's the biggest case against an individual company out there. We couldn't we couldn't wait another 15 years for the slow wheels of justice to grind at the WTO, which, by the way, have no teeth. They make these suggestions, and they say, don't do it again. And these countries say, okay, but they do it again. So I'm just glad we're fighting this fight. Uh, I, I feel like maybe the public is, is starting to understand what's at stake and the tide is turning there. Some of your classic economists, particularly conservative ones, don't like this. But I think even they may have to start rethinking, ultimately, what do we want? Because if you say, if you argue that the economy should work to achieve low prices at, by any means, I mean, that's really is saying that we're okay with slave labor, we're okay with dumping and subsidies. Uh, you know, we're okay with uh, companies cheating, countries cheating, and I'm not sure. Maybe that's fine for some of these classic economists, but that's not fine for human beings and Americans anymore. So I'm really glad we're fighting back against that, and I think we're going to win. I really do. Well, I think most people agree that um, many of our trade deals could be better. I think that's where there is common ground between people. So you're correct in thinking through um, wanting to always get the best deal for America. And I wanted to bring up, you're talking about – 
Americans, I want to talk about a group of people that you and I have talked about before, and that is suburban women out there and where they're going to go in, in 2020 and the next election. How much of the economy and what the economy is doing, not just matters for how the general public votes, but do you think matters to women and how they vote? Is the economy a big selling feature for suburban women? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think suburban women are involved in household finances more than more than you know, any other sort of subcategory or category of women in general. Uh, you know, and um, it's I think it's number one. You know, it's interesting in the polls. When, when things are going well, they don't pull well. In other words, if our economy was in, in the throes of a major recession right now, it would be the number one topic when they go out and poll folks. Instead, it's other things, right? So, right. But it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. And I think we're reminded of that with the outcome of the election in Australia, where the poll said, oh, my goodness, the, the climate change candidate is going to win in a rout, in a rout. It was the harshest summer ever. The coral reef has gone away. The, the the fish are dying in the ocean. It was amazing. They were they were there was a coordination. This was supposed to be the climate change candidate's chance to win, and instead it was the exact opposite. Because I think when people actually got in the voting booth, men and women, they thought about it for a moment and said, "Golly, are we going to spend three, four, five hundred billion on this climate thing?" When we haven't had a recession for 27 years, do we really want to upset the apple cart to that degree? So I think I think that the economy is certainly going to play very strongly with suburban women, and surprisingly, I think also tougher immigration policies uh, seem to be playing right. very well uh, with with suburban women as well. Yeah, polling seems to show that suburban women are in support of the president being tough on what's going on on the border. So we'll see. I'm, I'm curious, though, what you mentioned, the Australia um, election, and you mentioned the feeling aspect, and you even said that earlier, how Joe Biden talks about feeling. So I think in the TV industry, we see that a lot, where either the people that go on or the candidates or the hosts themselves of the shows talk a lot about feelings and emotions in relation to not just the economy, but other topics as well. Do you feel like, especially in your industry in the TV, that you're constantly having to fight against um, the perception that we should just talk about our feelings related to this? Do you think people see through the feelings and realize the facts matter and the bottom line matters? And do you do you find it to be a struggle to have to compete against other networks and how they're framing issues? Uh I, I think the feeling thing works for politicians. I know that I talk to friends, personal friends, and who are doing very well, as well as they've ever done in their life. And they, and that feeling thing comes up. They, well, you know, yeah, I had a buddy the other day who told me he just felt like the economy was going better under Obama. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that stuff really does work from a political point of view. From a TV point of view, I just kind of look at financial television differently. Yeah, and 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 it's it's where it's my frustration comes in. I feel more of a quasi fiduciary responsibility, so I'm not one to do the doom and gloom stuff. Or I I like to get people as much as possible to to be centered around facts. Or one of the things that really bugs me the most is always doing stories on the worst case potential scenario. Right. <laughs> the sensationalized like the headlines. Yeah. Well, it's like the headlines. Jobs up three hundred fifty thousand this month, but it's and the but is turns out to be the story, not the news. 
Friday. <laughs> Consumer confidence was at a 15-year high. Did you hear about it? Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. And, and it's driven by the two to two-thirds lower income households that feel more strongly about this economy. And, and, and did you hear about uh, the part where, where, where we've got the greatest amount of households saying that they're enjoying economic income growth than at any time in 60 years? You probably didn't, but you probably heard the worst case scenario for the trade war, the worst case scenario for this and for that. And that's what drives news. It's almost like the sort of, you know, the, you know, maybe people do like to stop and rubberneck crashes on the highway. But I think it gets more dangerous and, and, and disingenuous when we're talking about financial television where people or financial media where people might actually be making decisions based on this stuff. Well, a couple more questions before you have to go. One is when you're taking a, or forecasting for us in the next year or so, any policy changes that you would like to see or anything in general that you would like to see happen so that our economy continues to improve? What would, what would President Charles Payne do? I tell you, President Charles Payne would hope that uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell stays on the course that he's on right now. <laughs> uh, honestly, I got to tell you something. It's and and again, this is perhaps the biggest story uh, of, of the year is the Federal Reserve. But I think it's something maybe of an epiphany. Certainly, it seems like when it comes to to Fed policy. I want you to think back to uh, February of last year, 2018. February 2nd, the January jobs report came out, and it was a strong jobs report, but there was one part of it that was intriguing. Wages were up 2.9% year over year. That session in Dow was off 666 points, a real bad omen for the rest of the year. Why? Because Wall Street had already said if wages are up 3% year over year, the Fed's going to start hiking interest rates. Right. Fast forward now, it's been many months in a row that we've been up well over 3% year over year. Earlier this year, Jay Powell said something that I thought was the most intriguing thing that he said, and perhaps the most bullish, that there's a distinct difference between wage inflation and price inflation. In the past, the Federal Reserve would automatically take actions based on wages, assuming that prices were going to go up soon thereafter. The fact that he has done that and that he's willing to allow Main Street to finally get a raise is the most important thing that can continue for our economy, along with these policies of lower regulations and, and you know, and, and steady taxes. What I would love to see, I wanted to see Main Street get a better, a bigger tax break, honestly. Yeah. I, I would have gone, I would have gone down to maybe 24, 25% for corporate America. And, and then the, the difference I would have given to, to middle-class America. Well, they say there's a second uh, round that they want to do. Do you think that could, <laughs> yeah, I, know. I, I don't know if that's feasible, but do you think that would be included even more tax cuts for those on Main Street? I think so. I think that's what they would love to do. Uh, you know, but of course, there's an issue of making the, the other tax cuts permanent <laughs> and getting yeah. the Democrats on board. Final question for you. You started with your story, which I hadn't heard that whole story. I think it's amazing what you've done. Um, I'm a entrepreneur as well and started a business, came to D.C. with $400 to my name when I was 20 years old. So that's a while ago now. What would you say to young people out there or people who are starting out? They say, look, I don't have any family connections to get where I want to go. I don't have a lot of money. What encouragement would you give to people who really want to make a way for themselves? Because I think something you and I both agree on is that the American dream is still alive in this country. 
Absolutely. Uh, just you have to believe in yourself. You really, you you almost just have you just have to be so tone deaf to the naysayers. You just really have to be. Uh, uh, you know, when I when I said I wanted to be a stockbroker, uh, yeah, even my own father said, "Ah, oh, you know what? I see that on TV. It's a bunch of white people throwing paper in the air. There's no way in the world you could do that or be there. They'll let you do that or whatever." I had, the only person in my life that that encouraged me at that age was my mom. And I just, you know, maybe I was goofy, silly, or just just a dreamer, but I never for a moment thought I could fail. And I think people just need to go into these things knowing that this, this our, our backdrop as a nation is designed for these dreams to come true. Well, Charles, we appreciate you coming on. You have a book coming out. Tell us when it comes out and the name of it again. Unstoppable Prosperity. Uh, we're, I don't have a firm date, but I would, and certainly in less than three weeks, please look out for it uh, because, again, I'm trying to help people unlock to certain things that they know, uh, but to apply it to change their course, to change their, their futures, because I think we all have it in us. I know we all have it in us. It's just a lack of confidence. I'm hoping I can give people the tools to bridge that confidence barrier. And thank you for joining us. Just so you know, if you don't already catch Charles Payne, you can catch him every day on Fox Business at 2 p.m. And of course, he makes lots of guest appearances on Fox News as well. But thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It does help. And also, we'd love it if you shared this episode. So let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at the Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. 